Hello and welcome to the STEM and Research Podcast. Today we have Professor Nitin Gupta from Indian Institute of Technology, Kanpur, from the Department of Biological Sciences and Biological Engineering, or BSB, uh, who's here to share his story with science. Um, so would you like to introduce yourself for the audience? Hi everyone, uh, I'm Nitin and I'm a faculty member here in the BSB department. Um, my background is in computer science. I have an undergraduate degree in computer science. Um, and then I did my PhD in bioinformatics uh, and a postdoc in experimental neuroscience. And after that, I joined the department as a faculty member here. And my area of interest is uh, computational and systems biology and neuroscience. So uh, right now, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, and one thing that's like immediately relevant is something that you have worked in the past, like since daily cases have only been rising naturally, there might be more pressure on the healthcare systems in India, especially when it comes to like demand for PPEs or personal protective equipment. So like, could you maybe right away talk about the PPE kit you were involved in developing? Uh, yeah, so we started working on this uh, right when the pandemic was starting in India uh, in late March. Uh, and at that time, looking at the numbers in Italy and Spain, it seemed like the the numbers were just going through the roof and uh, the healthcare systems were getting uh, out of capacity and people had nothing, uh, no protection and, and nothing. So although the numbers in India were small, it, it seemed to us that the same thing might happen in India as well. Um, it's just a matter of time and uh, because we did not have the the sufficient manufacturing capacity for PPEs, we thought that there is a need for finding low-cost alternatives that can be quickly scaled up. Uh, and one thing we thought uh, that is readily available is uh, this polyethylene material uh, with which normal carry bags are made. So we felt that if we can mold it somehow in the shape of PPE um, uh, in a way that can be done very quickly, uh, then that might uh, help people if, if there is uh, ever a crisis here. So we worked with a, a, a local factory in Kanpur. Uh, they brought us, uh, so they make these plastic uh, packaging films for other industry. Uh, so they bought some samples here and then we, we played with it for 15, 20 days and uh, came up with a design that can be very quickly made, uh, very efficiently uh, at the cost of, like at one tenth of the standard cost of PPEs. Uh, and that design, um, has worked uh, reasonably well and we have made it open source now so anyone can use it uh, it's available on our website pipeskit.org and uh, three four companies in india have started using it and they are uh, making the design and supplying the pp kits to people uh, but thankfully the crisis that we imagined in the beginning that uh, the health system will get completely overwhelmed and there would be lags or crores of cases suddenly uh, it didn't rise so rapidly. The numbers are rising and, and maybe things will become bad perhaps, but uh, it has not been as bad as we initially imagined. So the need has been uh, also limited. So how widely has it, uh, is it currently being used? Um, so I think about uh, 75,000 kits have been made and supplied so far uh, by these uh, three or four manufacturers who are making it. But the, I guess the overall requirement is much larger. So, uh, but one thing that has happened because we got, uh, because the India 
country got some time, three four months in between to prepare. So even the other kinds of standard PPEs have become available in the market now, and their production capacity has also been ramped up. So, so I guess something is available to people. People who are really short of funds can still use this because the cost of the pipes kit is still quite low compared to others. Uh, so, so could you uh, like talk about how exactly it is relatively inexpensive? Um, so, in terms of cost, uh, so it's it's about hundred rupees per kit, hundred and hundred twenty rupees. Whereas the standard PP kits can cost somewhere between uh, five hundred to thousand rupees. Uh, and how do we get it to be? Uh, how we are able to make it so cheap is basically. Uh, uh, two things. One is the material itself is very inexpensive, um, and secondly, the process of making it is also very simple. So you basically start with these polyethylene rolls. Uh, these are cylindrical tubes of polyethylene, and you press them. Um, so you already have a like a two-layered material, and in that two-layered material, if you just make a few cuts and um, seals, uh, which can be done again very quickly at, at one shot using dies. Uh, then you have a, a like a gown-like thing that can be worn. So as opposed to a standard PPEs that require stitching or uh, or ultrasonic welding that has to happen line by line on, so it takes more time and more uh, infrastructure to do the standard PPEs, and this can be done with very cheap uh, equipment, just using blades and heat sealing machines. So that brings the cost down. Okay, so so you said you open sourced it, right? Can you talk about why exactly did you open source it, and was there any reason not to like in the big picture if you were thinking about maximizing production or something like that? Um, yeah, so well, maximizing production was the main reason, uh, and we thought that instead of limiting, like the alternative that we could have taken was to f have an agreement with a company that you will make it, and then you can provide us uh, or IT can put some royalty. Uh, but that would have limited the production to one company, and because that company would have the exclusive license, then uh, they would have incentive to raise. I mean, they, they could have raised the cost also. Uh, so by open sourcing it now, any any factory can make it, and because multiple factories can make it, uh, that also puts pressure on them to not charge uh, very high prices. So it both uh, keeps the price low as well as uh, increases the production and also. Uh, in a pandemic situation, you don't want to ship things very long distances uh, because shipping chains are, or the supply chains are getting disrupted. So if different factories in different parts of the country can make it locally, then that would be the best. So currently, is it just local or is it being used throughout? Uh, so these four factories that uh, are making it, uh, one is in Kanpur, uh, one is local, the one that we started working with, but the three others are in other different cities. So one is in Faridabad, one is in Mumbai, uh, and one is in Pune. Okay, that's that's great. Yeah, that's really nice to know. Um, maybe throughout the next section, we'll just talk about your background of what exactly made you the researcher you are today. So we are going to talk about the background journey uh, in the next few questions. Um, so as someone who has aced entrance examinations, what are, what are your thoughts on the educational system in India relying so much on metrics like the exams or school grades? So what's your take on quantifying things? 
yeah i mean it's it's not ideal uh, i mean any educational system should uh, be open and uh, should cater to the diversity of interests and diversity of aptitudes not everyone has to learn the same thing not everyone has should have to become engineer or doctor mm-hmm. there should be many more options so um i guess what the unfortunately what has happened in our country is that the all of this is basically a side effect of lack of good good quality colleges in the country um so the the best colleges uh, tend to be uh, or i mean a lot of good the the number of good colleges other than iits is very small uh, to put in other words if, if someone wants to go into technical any kind of technical work then iits uh, are the best and then there are some iits and, and a, a few private institutions but the numbers uh, are small and still in terms of the facilities and in terms of uh, the uh, the type of instruction that is available uh, that choice remains limited and because of that i think this pressure is there that everyone wants to go to the same colleges uh, iits in this case or or the same limited number of medical institutions uh, and when you have a country as large as india uh, with i don't know how many lakhs or crores of people are uh, getting into that college um, graduating from 12th class every year and getting ready to go to college and you have only 20000 30000 seats available that uh, causes this whole pressure so it's unfortunate so i think what what is missing is the number of good colleges in the country mm-hmm. if that could be addressed then all this uh, all this pressure to go to certain colleges or focus on certain exams or metrics will go away so when we're still on the note about talking about the differences between school and college would you say that you enjoyed your formal education more in college than in school um well uh, that's a uh, interesting question so i i think i was pretty happy in my college um and i was also happy in my school but uh, i guess it also depends a lot on the what kind of college and what kind of school you go to sure. um so i was in a small town and my school was not particularly um good i would say i mean looking back uh, it was very restricted in times in terms of the facilities available i mean we had no sports ground I mean, it was a tiny sports ground with 1000 students uh, in the school so there were very limited uh things and the quality of instruction was also rather limited so but as a kid i had i still had fun in that time but um, uh, during college time i came to iit kanpur and certainly the campus here and the, the all the diversity of things that you can do in college uh, was there so i really had a good time um yeah so i guess overall if i have to compare then i would say my college time was more enjoyable mm-hmm. than the school time uh, so since we're talking about school kids in general and school life in general uh do you think for students who are still in school who are interested in pursuing research what are some skills they could try and have right from the start 
So, so I guess one uh, one thing is to to maintain that curiosity that every kid has to start with, and somewhere it uh, it gets lost during the process of school education or in the process of getting to college. Um, uh, asking questions of why does this thing work in this way and why something happens and, and being curious about multiple things about nature, about human body, about uh, how different different gadgets that you use, how do, how do they work. So I think everyone has that curiosity and just maintaining that and asking questions, even if uh, your school teachers cannot answer them uh, now, there are lots of other ways of getting answers through internet uh, or through, I guess there might be other Facebook groups, etc. One could also join perhaps. Um, so maintaining that interest and curiosity in science. And, and secondly, of course, you also need these skills. Uh, just interest is not enough. Um, you also need some basic core uh, science and math skills to make progress. Um, so learning your uh, physics, chemistry, biology, math uh, well is important also. Mm -hmm. I, would, uh, I would put a little more emphasis on math. Uh, uh, <laughs> maybe I'm biased because I, I do work in a lot of quantitative research areas, but I think a lot of, uh, lot of research areas uh, are becoming data intensive. And uh, it, when one is dealing with large amounts of data, it is helpful to have some mathematical abilities. I mean, but it need not be, I mean, one need not know very advanced fancy maths, even the basic school level math that is there in the standard textbooks. If one understands those things well, uh, that is enough in most cases. Uh, so when you said like, uh, you should learn the physics, chemistry, math uh, well. Like, can you uh, tell people what exactly is your definition of learning something? Um, uh, well, I, I guess uh, my definition would be what anyone uh, would also say. I mean, you you understand the concepts. So if you are, uh, say, look, I mean, to take some example, um, say in physics, you are looking at friction and you're solving problems related to what, what, what would be the acceleration of some uh, mass in the presence of friction in, in certain situations. So um, one should be able to, to sort of have an intuition about what is happening, what is, uh, I mean, not just uh, learning the formulae and getting an answer, but but having some intuition about what exactly is friction that uh, the more heavy something is, the, the more friction also it will have. And um, if you have a inclined plane and you have some mass sitting on it, then the more steep it is, the more, uh, uh, the less friction it will have uh, and why. So some, some intuition about uh, these things as you are learning, so basically. Sure. So um, one thing you mentioned was doctors or engineers in the middle. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about that. So, like we have this sort of common myth in India that if someone wants to enter science or technology, they should like start with engineering or medicine, regardless of their interests. 
so it's almost as if you first become an engineer and then you decide what you want to become so like is there any reason whatsoever that yeah. a career in a field like math or say bioinformatics should begin with engineering right so again i think the it is not the ideal situation that's not how it should have been but it it, it is the way it is because if you want to do uh, science in general uh, um then the number of other places where you can get good quality education is limited i mean there are certainly some good colleges uh, some universities have good good science colleges also where uh, without becoming an engineer one could still learn physics chemistry or or other branches of science and become a good scientist eventually but those opportunities are limited so that's why i mean if the other places that have good science curriculum are iits and nits and to go there one has to become an engineer basically so that's how that happens but if i hope that going forward if maybe perhaps more private colleges good quality private colleges come up and they start providing good science education then then it would not be necessary for one to become an engineer to become a scientist so uh, you yourself entered uh, like a computer science program for for a btech right um, so like why exactly did you choose computer science were you always interested in it like since you're doing biology now mm-hmm. um no i i wouldn't say i was uh, i was very passionate about computer science i mean to be honest i i just took computer science because um, partly because of the the trend that computer science is considered uh, a good branch and i i had a good rank so i had the opportunity of taking any branch and uh, so that was part of the reason i i did have at my home there was a computer when i was growing up so i and i um i liked working on the computer or playing on the computer more often um so that was i did not have anything against computer science and i i liked working with computers so i thought and the general trend was also liking computer science so i went with it uh, but it was not a very informed or very considered decision i would say uh, and perhaps that's maybe part of the reason that i meandered away from computer science eventually uh, because it was not not my passion as such so when you chose it were you were you interested in biology like were you always interested in biology um not really actually um i in fact i did not have biology in my 11th and 12th class so i only had physics and math and and some language subjects so till 10th class i had studied biology and i sort of i was okay i mean i i liked it but it was never um, i certainly was more bent towards uh, the the engineering side um it just so it just happened eventually that i i got exposed to biology and and then i developed a liking for it later during my college but when i entered college uh, i had never thought that i would go into biology actually okay so i mean ultimately after you uh, completed your btech you 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 went for you entered the field of biology like with your interest did you feel like uh, not having a, a, an undergrad education in biology primarily did you feel like that made made you fall behind in any way at all mm-hmm. 
um well actually i i did uh, i did take some course work in biology during my undergrad here uh, so, so there was this new uh, bsb department had formed at the time and uh, there is an option of taking elective courses uh, so even though i was in the computer science department i could take elective courses from biology uh, and that provided me some background and a lot of reading one can do oneself so uh, it's a, perhaps uh, in biology where um, i think you could one could learn oneself uh, to to some extent so i did some self reading myself okay uh, but formally speaking uh, like you must have known other people who who would have uh, right from the start uh, started educating themselves uh, it, it within some kind of field that's related to biology so do you think compared to them uh, you felt like maybe they have some sort of head start on you uh, i guess the whether that happens will depend on what kind of work you want to do eventually in biology uh, so because biology itself is a very uh, wide uh, domain and there are many different types of research areas so i, I was working in bioinformatics uh, after my graduation and that required more uh, of a background in um, programming and uh, data analysis um, so for that i i think my background in computer science was useful uh, if i had a background in biology uh, it would have made it easier in some respects but it would also have made my life harder in other respects so uh, i i think the combination of computer science and some biology courses was suitable for that but if someone wants to uh, I, there are people i mean someone could go even from computer science into more experimental biology and if i were doing uh, more core cell biology or molecular biology then certainly i would have had some handicap there mm -hmm. so as you mentioned you were a student at iit kanpur and again as you already talked about it you would say your experience was really good here so how does how does it feel to be back here as a professor right now well if i had if i had a choice i would rather come back as a student again <laughs> than as a professor uh, the life was certainly much more uh, fun as a student but um, i think it's uh, it's it's nice to be back in the campus uh, in in some way uh, i'm sort of it feels familiar and it's easier to get started but i guess if i had gone to some other other place also i would have gotten used to it in in a few months so mm -hmm. that is not a major factor um and after that now i have gotten used to being a professor so <laughs> i don't uh, relate or i don't think about my student life too much now mm -hmm. mm. so kind of building from that as you mentioned before when you started studying here bsb was a very new department so do you think that the campus has changed a lot both in culture and aesthetic and more specifically could you elaborate on the bsb side of it um well the the one way in which the campus has changed is is in the size so just the number of buildings and number of hostels and number of 
students everything has uh, doubled i guess since my time um, but in terms of culture i i it, it still feels the same to me uh, students uh, often i mean some some people feel that things were better earlier and now some things have become worse but i, I don't know i think it that that feeling is always there uh, things seem always seem messy at the present time and past sometime is seen with a rosy lens but uh, i think I, i do remember when i was a student then also there were various agitations and there were various complaints against administration and so on so that that is always there um but bsb certainly i mean there has been a major change because I, when i was there then bsb was just a newly formed department and even the building was not functional and there were only five or six faculty members and now we have a fully functional department with 20 faculty members and the new building is coming up mm-hmm. so there is a lot of lot of activity and also a lot of uh, recognition um, of this department uh, i think at that time there was probably some hesitation among people that is iits are supposed to be engineering colleges why is a bio department here uh, now sort of people appreciate the presence of a bio department in the engineering school well bsb is thriving right now on campus and it would probably be incomplete without it given the current situation so that's nice <laughs> so i mean you just mentioned that people uh, thought why is there a bio department in an engineering uh, college like but is isn't biological engineering a, a proper uh, engineering would you say it is yeah so uh, but uh, um i guess now people are are appreciating it as a proper engineering uh, but in the beginning there were uh, i guess there were hesitations about it is it is it can it be compared to real engineering or is it like sort of more soft engineering so you know these debates are always there like mathematicians think that uh, all the other branches are just applied uh, sciences and they are not real sciences and maths is a pure science physics think the same thing about chemi- chemists and chemists think the same thing about biologists so which science is more pure and more authentic these these views are always there and they keep on changing sure so um you had a phd um, in bioinformatics and systems biology if i'm not wrong um uh, i wanted to ask you about systems biology specifically because most people usually think of biology as a subject that's sort of reductionistic like you break apart an organism or a system into its components and then you pick one of the components and then just study that in particular so can you talk about how systems biology is different from this idea common idea and like what you find interesting about this field right so i i guess it's the answer is sort of already there in your question uh, that In, in normal biology people break things down so in systems biology the idea is to put things back together and see how they behave as a system and uh, the reason it is required is that the i mean if you had independent components then perhaps that, that would be enough 
of just breaking things down and understanding the behavior of each component independently um, and if they were independent then you could predict what how they will act as a group also but when you have uh, interacting components and something is exciting like a protein is activating other protein and the second protein is inhibiting the third protein which is activating the th first protein then you have all sort of feedbacks and uh, what will be the final behavior of the system uh, is very difficult to predict if you just know how individual components function uh, so there you need to look at the activity of the whole system uh, or to be able to model this activity of the whole system uh, as a single whole rather than as a component so uh, so th this is what people are realizing more and more in different different domains of biology. So in terms of uh, looking at the activity of genes or proteins, uh, or or in the case of uh, my current focus uh, in in the case of brain, uh, how different neurons function together. Uh, so there are a lot of interactions between different neurons, and you want to see how the whole network behaves. So as a researcher. Uh... This seems like you're sort of bridging together different fields. Do you work uh, with uh, professional researchers in those other fields, or or, or do you have to yourself, uh, you know, um, get acquainted with both the fields in in extreme detail and then attempt to bridge them yourself? Um, so both things happen. Um, in our lab, also we try to combine multiple. Uh, fields. Um, so there are some people in my lab who do experiments and some people who do uh, simulations uh, and experiments also of different kinds. Uh, but we also do collaborate with other uh, labs. So there's we, we cannot do everything ourselves. That would be uh, that would limit us if we try to do everything ourselves. Uh, or so so we do collaborate with other researchers also who are working with different model systems and they can provide data from those model systems. Things can be combined then. So we were talking about systems biology before. That was one of your focuses on PhD. Um, talking about that a bit, you directly went for a PhD program after your bachelor's, which is not that conventional a trend in India. So maybe you could talk about it. And uh, do you feel like this was sort of a jump or an unconventional trend for you? Um, so, well, if you have a BTEC, then uh, one is eligible to apply for a PhD. Um, uh, and typically, if one has a BSc, then uh, if you have a three-year BSc, then a, then a master's degree is also necessary. If you have a four-year BS, then one can directly go for a PhD. Um, so I was eligible, um, and I was uh, uh, confident that I wanted to go for higher studies and did not want to go for a job. So I, I took that. Uh, lunch right away and I looking back I think I, it was the right decision for me uh, but if someone is not sure if they if the PhD is right thing for them or if you're not because it's a five-year plus time commitment uh, and if one is not sure then it's okay to, to do a job or to take a project position for a year and decide uh, so on the topic of your PhD, you did your PhD from UCSD. How is your time different there from IIT Kanpur? Well, I also had a, a really good time there. Um, uh, it was it was quite similar uh, in some ways that 
you would take classes and you would have your work but i also had a lot of friends and we would hang out uh, in the evenings and have fun uh, doing different things uh, how was it different um, i guess as a phd student i had a little more independence uh, because you i was also getting a stipend so i was uh, i had financial independence and i could uh, decide to, uh, i could choose what to do and i was also staying uh, in a rented apartment rather than living in a hostel so so it, it was a more independent life uh, but it was equally fun as a as a hostel life for me um, of course the in terms of work uh, the focus in uh, during phd was more on research uh, whereas here uh, in i in the college the focus was more on completing courses so that is one main difference uh, you spend more time in the lab uh, doing your research which is so one is i mean you're not constantly chasing exams and and uh, finishing up courses but thinking more long term about the research so that is interesting in some ways so was that your first experience with research um no i had a little bit of research experience before going for phd so even uh, while i was in iit here uh, i did some projects um and i also took some internships so after my uh, or during my third year uh, uh, yeah during my third year i went for an in internship um at ncps bangalore uh, in the in the middle of my third year and then after the end of my third year i went for an internship outside and during my iit uh, coursework also i did several projects so all of that gave me uh, research experience uh, which was very uh, in fact which was very essential for me uh, before making the jump to phd okay so since we're talking about research how do you think the culture of research has shifted or is shifting in india if at all <laughs> yeah um i i would think that now there is slightly more awareness about it and perhaps and people are uh, realizing that this is an option uh, sooner uh, you guys are examples where you are actively thinking about research um, but uh, i guess in terms of people who are finishing college and going to research that fraction seems to not have changed too much still i think so that is perhaps similar at least uh, at least in, in iit but maybe in other places uh, i don't know how the situation is if that number is increasing or not so when we're talking about being involved in research at a young age what's your view on high school students being involved in some kind of research do you think such exposure could really change their trajectory or do you think uh it's important also do you think there is a lower age limit to it like do you need to be a certain age to be involved in research no i think there should there should not be an age limit and there is no no reason uh, why someone young cannot get involved in research and again uh, you guys are examples of it already but um i mean research requires depending on the project so research is a very broad term and the research project could be of many different kinds 
just observing the behavior of an animal under certain in two different conditions and comparing that can be a research project mm -hmm. and easily a 10 year old or 12 year old can can do that i mean just observing an ant and seeing what the ant is doing in two different conditions and, and taking some notes in your notebook um, so depending on the kind of project people can get involved at early ages and and that can help in creating motivation um, or at least and like making them more likely to go into science. So in that sense, I think early exposure to research can be very good. And how to do this and where to find the opportunities? You know, I mean, the number of undergrad uh, high school students is very high. So if every one of them started approaching the professors, then mm -hmm. the professors would be um, sort of inundated and they would not know who to take and who not to take. But if someone is serious and they are consistently making some effort and then they approach someone, then, then I think something can be set up on a case-to-case -case basis. That's good to hear. Yes, that's really nice to hear. But that's also a really good point because not everybody is going to get into research, but maybe it's necessary to get those some people into it as well. So. Um, one of your primary research interests is insect olfaction. Um, can you talk about why you're interested in this particular topic? So, uh, so we use insect olfaction as a model system. So it, it's not that we are. Uh, my interest is limited to that. Uh, but you know, I mean, more generally, I'm interested in understanding the brain, how the brain functions, and how the brain makes decisions, and how the perceptions in the brain happen. And as part of that, uh, we we want to understand the, the functioning of neurons and neural circuits in general. And uh, insect olfaction is is the model system that we are focusing on. So different different researchers in the field look at different systems, and all the information that we accumulate um, is sort of combined in the scientific literature, and we we get an overall picture. Um, but insect olfaction is a good model system in some ways because uh, there are a few things. So, uh, first of all, insects uh, do show uh, um, a diversity of olfactory behavior. So, olfaction is basically the sense of smell. And uh, unlike humans, we are like we are very much visual organisms. For us, vision plays a very dominant role in our lives, and other sensory other senses are of Sort of somewhat lower importance. Uh, for insects, uh, olfaction is very important. So a lot of their decisions in daily life on what we eat and uh, where to go um, depends on depends on their smelling sense. So and other factors are that the the size of the olfactory system, the number of neurons that it includes, uh, is limited. So we have a possibility of mapping it in more detail, knowing exactly how many neurons are there, how they are connected to each other, um, and because it also like it has been a, a legacy that a lot of people have worked on this in the past. Uh, for last hundred years, people have been looking at the olfactory behaviors and olfactory circuits in various insects. So a lot of knowledge has accumulated, and it's easier to build on top of it. Um, 
and also it's easy why insects and not other organisms because it's uh, easy to do manipulations on insects so i mean i could do 10 experiments on insects in the same amount of time as it would take me to do one experiment on mice mm -hmm. uh, and it would take even much more time to do experiments on bigger organisms uh, so there there are many practical advantages uh, there is lot lots of manipulations that one can do on insects Uh, and at the same time, uh, because all the organisms are related by evolution, so lot of things, lot of mechanisms are well conserved across different animals. So even the how a single neuron functions, that is very similar between insects and and mice and humans. Okay, so I was just curious about one thing. You mentioned uh, mapping the network. So were you referring to the connectome here? And like, are you guys like investing something with the bioinformatics uh, intersection to work with that? so connectome is a modern like is a is a new new term that people have started using uh, and it it's often used um, well it's used in various different ways so when uh, people are talking about human brain uh, and then when we talk about connectome then we mean the the large scale connections between different brain areas and these are mapped using fmri uh, or, or related methods uh, in the case of insects or mice when people talk of connectome people are usually referring referring to electron microscopy image uh, analysis where you look at the uh, different parts of the brain in a great amount of detail using electron microscopes so you can see even small components within a neuron um we are somewhere in between uh, so not as detailed as electron microscopy and not as broad as like the regions of human brain Mm -hmm. uh, but more like looking at the structures of individual neurons in the insect brain uh, and seeing like which neurons are there in different olfactory regions and how they are uh, organized and connected to each other so at a sort of a middle uh, scale so we, we typically deal with few hundreds to few thousands of neurons Okay, so so uh, if I'm not wrong, this sounds like it's related to systems biology. Uh, like, would you say uh, how how exactly does your background in bioinformatics and systems biology link with this work? Um, not directly. Um, so this uh, this area is sometimes called systems neuroscience, um, and I guess at a very broad level, the concepts are similar. That uh, when people talk of systems biology, people are usually referring to uh systems of genes or proteins uh, where uh, or systems within a cell uh, how things are in interacting uh, in case of system neuroscience we are talking of systems of neurons uh, how neurons are connected to each other and how they affect each other and then how the overall behavior emerges from it um so the kind of interactions that could happen excitatory or inhibitory interactions and the kind of feedback loops that can form those are there is a correspondence between those uh, but the the entities are completely different mm -hmm. that's great so another one of your main like interests is the computerized cbd project which is treadwell if i'm not wrong so maybe could you talk a bit about the motivation behind this area mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so this is a this is sort of a new area that I got into after I, I joined as a faculty member here. Before that, I had no experience in mental health. Uh, but after coming here, uh, while I was setting up the experimental lab, we also realized that there is a need in the mental health space. Uh, there are a lot of people uh, in India and, and everywhere, I guess, uh, who have mental health problems and because of various taboo and stigma, people do not get support. So we felt that if uh, some solutions can be delivered uh, through an automated program, that people can access uh, privately from their room without having to talk to anyone in, in person uh, at any time, uh, that would help. So that was the main motivation to try to make a psychotherapy program that mm -hmm. can be done automatically. So maybe could you just go a bit into depth about how it works? And if you don't mind, could you first like explain what exactly is CBT for our viewers? Sure. So uh, CBT stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Uh, it is one of the psychotherapy approaches. Uh, psychotherapy is any kind of like if you if you have if you are having some mental health issues, then um, you could go to a counselor and counselor can try to understand your issues and then they will give you a therapy which is basically some kind of training uh, and they will teach you some techniques that you can apply to analyze your own behavior and to change your own behavior uh, so there are different approaches to this but one of the most commonly used and most studied approaches is cognitive behavioral therapy or cbt in which the main idea is that your behavior and your uh, thoughts and your emotions. So these three things are very tightly related. So if you are having some, uh, like if you are feeling bad for a very long time, and uh, that can happen to everyone, uh, and and that goes away after some time. But if if that becomes it starts affecting your thoughts continuously, and that starts affecting your behavior, and then your behavior change changes in a way that it starts affecting your thought and uh, emotions and so sort of each other start reinforcing the negative negative emotions reinforce negative thoughts and negative thoughts reinforce negative behavior then you go into a vicious cycle um, so if you can uh, so to come out of the cycle the cbt approach tries to uh, uh, change each of these things so it tries to change the behavior by setting up good uh, routines or trying to set up good behaviors. Uh, tries to change your thought by teaching you uh, what are the common distortions that can happen in thoughts and how to identify them and how to resolve them and how to address your emotions. So all of that training is given and there is a well-defined methodology for giving CBT. Um, and because it is so structured, we thought that this can also be given through a program. Uh, if something is very subjective and it has to be highly um, configurable, configured every time, then it would be difficult. But but because CBT is somewhat uh, fairly structured, uh, it can be coded into a program and, and delivered reasonably. Uh, and so we are trying to do it. Some other groups are also trying to do it. So I actually recently read please correct me if I'm wrong, is that 
one of the problems or like one of the challenges was that about the retention rate. So you guys introduced a bot to help with that for the human interaction. So maybe could you talk about maybe that challenge or some other challenges you could have faced in this project? Yes, so you're right. The biggest challenge in all these CBT uh, or any automated uh, program is a retention rate. A lot of people start using them out of curiosity, but then very soon they drop out. Uh, and so how to engage the users enough so that they can continue the, the therapy. Uh, that is the biggest challenge. And for addressing that, we have tried several uh, several measures. So bot is one of them uh, where instead of simply displaying the content uh, in a passive manner, you just read the content. Uh, the interactive bot uh, sort of the user can type things and they get a response that is based on the input of the user. So it's more, it feels more interactive and more personal, and we are hoping that that will reduce the attrition rate. Uh, in addition, we are also adding some some games uh, that sort of provide kind of some kind of training in the form of games. Uh, then there is a, uh, a support group where users can interact with each other and help help each other. That might also increase the engagement. So these kind of uh, things we are hoping will address the attrition issue. So I think it would be somewhat okay to say that it's still in the testing phases. When do you think it would be a part of the mainstream um, therapy that is given to people? Right. So because it's a, it's a program that is going to be used by uh, people who have already some difficulties, uh, it is very important to ensure that um, it is not causing any kind of harm and it's uh, it's actually helping people in the way that we imagine it would help and the way of checking whether that's actually happening or not is to do a, a randomized controlled trial mm -hmm. uh, in which you in any kind of like it's the same kind of paradigm that is used for any new medication that if you have a new medication to, to first you want to check whether it is actually effective or not so you give that medication to some people and give some placebo to other people. Mm -hmm. And then you see at the end of some period, uh, whether people who got the medication are better off or not. So similarly, we are, uh, we are about to start a randomized control trial for treadmill in which some people will get the program and some people will get a control program. And then, then we will see whether people who got the treadmill program are actually benefited or not. And if that's the case, then we will be releasing it. We hope that is the case. That's still very hopeful, though. I mean, even if it's a year, maybe even if it's five years, it's still going to be really great to have it a part of the normal treatment methods. So um, we, I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about young people who I think most of the viewers are young people. Um, how do you think young people, especially those at the end of school or those who are starting college, who are just beginning to think about their career, how, how do you think they can formally get engaged with research? Like you mentioned, you did some projects uh, in your third year, uh, maybe something along those lines. Can you elaborate? Yes, so I think, uh, I mean, there is no one, one path to research. Um, uh, 
I had a certain path, but I mean, if you just look at different uh, researchers here, everyone has had a very different trajectory. Someone started in college, someone started in after college, someone perhaps before college, and, and in many different ways. Um, so, I guess one should try to find whatever opportunity one can get. It's 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 more difficult to find opportunities in the beginning. It becomes easier as you start doing some things and you build some experience then based on that finding the second opportunity is slightly easier and then based on that finding the third one is even easier uh, so finding the first one might be the most difficult one and in that case whatever one can find uh, so it's often easiest to find something within your college wherever uh, if one is already in college then there may be some people in no matter what college it is some people some faculty members who are interested in research. Um, so approaching them and showing them that you are genuinely interested and and taking up a project for a long uh, duration. So I think one mistake that a lot of people do is to jump from project to project too quickly. Like if you do something for a month and then you, you leave it in between and then you start doing something else for a month and you leave it in between. Uh, that 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 does not give a lot of confidence that the, the next time you approach someone for a project they might think that you they cannot be sure that you will complete whatever task you take up uh, but if you if you finish if you do something for a sufficiently long time and finish it well uh, then that adds to your credibility and it will be easier for you or for anyone to find the next project so that is one uh, recommendation I would give to anyone that what, whatever the project it is, uh, do it well and, and give it time. In a college, if you do two or three projects well, that is better than doing seven or eight projects not well. So while a student is, uh, I'm sorry, but so, so while a student is uh, approaching this whole research uh, endeavor of theirs. Um, what should be going through their mind? Like, should it be more about exploring their interests, or or should it be more about uh, like this one problem that they want to, you know, like they're really interested and they want to solve, help solve at least. Right, right. So, I mean, usually uh, when you are just starting out, uh, it's, it's difficult to have that kind of idea uh, that this problem um, that you want to solve. But if someone has that idea, that's great, and then they can find someone who is who may be interested in that research and then discuss so that i think is ideal but even if you don't know what problem you want to work on uh, and that's probably going to be the case with 95% of people uh, that's okay i mean simply knowing that broadly you are interested in this kind of area that I mean, you are inter interested in some some biological you want to address something in biology or or let's say biology and combination of biology and some physics that even that broad level of interest may be enough uh, and then one could find a lab that is willing to host you once you start working then you start getting more uh, more specific ideas about research questions and further projects so do you have any advice for students who are maybe trying to sort of carve their part in, path into something like a lab or something like an internship? How should they approach the people there? Like, 
how how should they basically maximize their chances of getting that experience um yeah i mean to some extent it's a it's a sort of it's like a hit and trial process uh, it's it depends on uh, which labs one applies to and what availability they have so one can never know one would have to apply to lots of places but i guess to maximize the chances i guess showing some i mean before like if i were to take a student i also get lot of applications from from many students and before deciding whether to take someone or not um, i mean let's say i i have positions to take two students and if i have 20 applications so it's it's very difficult for me to choose which two of the 20 to take and i would try to see uh, what kind of experience you have before this um, what kind of uh, even if you don't have research experience what kind of coursework you have done and how you how well you have done in that coursework and then also based on your how you write to me i mean i could one can tell whether it's a generic email if you are copy pasting the same email to to lots of people or or have you actually uh, taken time to see what work is being done in my lab and uh, have you thought about it and written something specific about that uh, so if you have taken that effort of thinking about my research and and written something that is not just a copy paste from the website sometimes i mean now because this thing has become very common that people expect individualized emails so many students just copy paste one or two sentences or or the name of a paper from the website and say i have read this paper and i am very interested that also may not be enough because now many people have started doing it so perhaps i mean if one has actually put in some some thought and written something in your own words that will tell me that maybe you are genuinely interested and not so if they if they if they have any sort of questions um like like if they are approaching you and they have some sort of question about your research itself will that be like a good sign to you uh, that maybe the student is genuinely curious about what we are doing here yeah i guess uh, it's a genuine question but i i would not recommend it as a strategy because if everyone starts doing it then again it will become if one is doing it just to show interest and not being genuinely interested so you know it could yeah. then it would be a, a a mess because then there will be like thousands of emails asking questions uh, without being any but i guess i mean thankfully it's not happening too much now and uh, if someone genuinely writes to me about something then i'll be happy to reply and and i'm sure every every researcher would be happy to answer a genuine question and that would also show some interest so <laughs> i've been dying to ask this question okay so now that we're in the point of like securing internships and positions at labs i think surge is iit kanpur's structured summer program for research right so do you think having such research programs for high school students could be a possible model in the future and do you think how can we achieve this if at all we can
yeah i mean it's it's possible to see even if you look at search uh, so search is the internship program that uh, takes third year students from other colleges mm-hmm. and second year students of 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 the campus itself um so one could argue why not second year students from other colleges or first year students from other colleges um and then why not high school students also i, I guess is the uh, there is a limit on how many people can be hosted uh, by the labs even even within search we are not able to host all the students who apply so only some can be selected um so yeah I, i think that it's a limitation on how many positions are there in labs and how many people can be taken and actually mentored simply taking lot of people but not being able to give them time or or a or a good project would also not be a good thing so i'm not sure if it can be made a formal program with lots of students but i think at this point given the number of students uh, high school students uh, who are actually interested in research is still small mm-hmm. can be managed it can happen on a case to case basis as of now um, but if the i mean i, I would i'm also not uh, averse to it i think uh, if some small program maybe with a small batch of high school students could be started and uh, that brings them to campus and gives them some opportunity that that may be a good thing also so hypothetically speaking maybe in the next few years iit does start such a pilot program with maybe just a couple of students from across the country do you think premier institutions like iit would lead this change yeah i, I mean i they should and i mean given this uh, the only limitation is the same that i just mentioned mm-hmm. that the how many students can be uh, hosted uh, and given the the required attention um or uh, but certainly i, I think uh, a small program can be started and it should be i mean there should be enough people in iit who are willing to host at least one student per lab can be easily managed so so iit should take a lead so since we're talking about taking leads uh, like this question is sort of on the it's sort of broad but uh, do you think any structural changes can be inculcated in like the secondary education system that might help make research a more popular or or an accessible option for for most people i'm assuming here that that most people do not enter research for some reason even if they want to um do you think any changes could be made to make it more popular yeah um, i think the biggest structural change i i think that is needed is simply having more good science institutions for undergraduate um icers are a, like were a very good move so uh, maybe about 10 12 years ago icers were formed so that allowed a lot of uh, students to go into science education without having to go to iits or nits um and uh, i think thousands of kids are now going to iits and getting good science education there 
but that number is still very small and the overall number of seats in ISRs compared to the number of students in the country is very small um, so that I think that is going to be the most effective step. If the government wants to do something substantial, then it should take form more good quality colleges and give them proper resources. So, uh, uh, from the perspective of someone working in the government, like uh, what sort of incentive would you say they have for making more research institutions, or why should research be be funded more in a sense? I think that's a very, uh, the answer to that is quite obvious, I think. I mean, everyone now realizes that the the future of the country depends on the scientific output and the, the, the scientific skills of the, of the population. I mean, more and more jobs are becoming automated and um, the economy is changing from the more hardware or more agricultural jobs to more uh, technical jobs. So countries that have more number of students in science and research are going to do better in the future than countries that remain limited to the traditional kind of education. And I, I think everyone, almost everyone realizes this. It's just a matter of acting on it and having the resources to, to act on it. It takes a lot of resources to have to form a new college, um, but given the amount of resources the government spends on various things, uh, I think some of those resources can be redirected. More of those resources can be redirected to education. So, what can people who are who are in in the scientific fields? What can they do to try to make this change happen? Well, as scientists, like, I mean, I, I would be one of them. And so what could people like us do to convince the government to form more, uh, start more colleges? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if, I think the, the biggest push can come from the general uh, population if, if, if kids and then their parents start asking for it that we and it if it becomes a like one of the issues on which people can even vote i mean then that will be the thing that will i mean politicians care about vote ultimately so if, if the more the number of people who ask for it uh, the more pressure they would have to start something like that that's a plan yeah how to take it how to take it to larger number of people is something i, I don't know mm -hmm. i think that's a very broad question first off and second like combining science and politics is a whole different domain so um but we're almost at the end of our interview so lastly do you have any advice for young researchers just getting started what could they keep in mind I think we already briefly touched this, but maybe you could just wrap up everything. Yeah, so, I mean, to, to summarize uh, some of the recommendations, uh, keep the curiosity going about various things. Um, every 
guess any field can be interesting. So it's uh, and there are lots of unknowns in any field. So maintain the curiosity about different things and uh, develop your good skill set. The basic skills of physics, chemistry, uh, basic biology, and math are are going to be useful no matter what kind of research area one goes into eventually. So uh, maintain those basic skills and then go ahead with whatever opportunity one can get. So don't try to judge too much whether this is the right entry point for me in research or that would be the right entry point. Whatever entry point one gets, go with it and do your best in that and don't try to jump out of it very quickly. Uh, whatever project you have taken, do a good job so that you can show the output of that and then you can find a better position the next time. That's perfect. I think that's a pretty good takeaway as well. Um, Professor Gupta, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and thanks to our audience for tuning in. We hope to see everyone in the future episodes. Thank you. Yeah. Really yeah. enjoyed doing this.